you would take out the word of Christ and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 22. At Ashland, we, we do want to be a church that uh, understands that the glory of God is revealed in multi-generational fellowship. We don't want to just be a church that caters to one group of people, one age group. Uh, we realize that uh, treasuring Christ means treasuring Christ together and seeing how the gospel applies uh, from zero to 99 and on. And so we try to uh, make room for that in many different ways here. One of the things that we do during the sermon every week is uh, we have grades fourth and fifth. Uh, they go to what's called Kids Bridge. And there they're taught and discipled what it means to worship with the church, songs and offering and baptism and the Lord's table and how important it is to hear and receive the word of God. And they're gathering in the back right now. If you have a fourth and fifth grader and you'd like for them to go to Kids Bridge, uh, you can send them at this time. And one of the other things that we do uh, after the service every week is we have what we call access for college students. Uh, we want to throw uh, the doors open and say, you can ask us any question you have about life, religion, politics, Christian living. We realize that students are shaping who they're going to be and uh, what they're going to do. Uh, and we want to harness that for the glory of Christ. And so we feed them a free meal. Uh, and we invite them to access. So if you're a college student, we do want to invite you to stay for that after the service today. Well, the question was asked, where else can we go? But to the words of Christ. And that's why we stand in reverence. 1 Samuel chapter 22 today. As we continue our study, the king we need. 1 Samuel chapter 22, I'm going to read verse 23 to begin our time together. But we, we stand in reverence to the reading of God's word because we believe that this isn't just some kind of tip book or manual for living. When the words of the Bible are read or heard or studied or memorized, or echoed around in our head, Christ is present. He is speaking. And so we stand as if someone important is present. No, we stand as if the most important person is present in this moment. Hear the word of Christ. Stay with me. And do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Oh, I pray in that moment, Lord, we heard Jesus speak to us. Our sin and death seek our life, but he says, stay with me and find refuge. May we do so through the preaching of your word during this time. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Whose boy are you? Who do you belong to? 
Now, that's one of the most awkward questions for a kid that happened to me once a year over and over at the annual family reunion. This is where hundreds of family members gathered at the local state park. They would come from the hills of Tennessee, and they would gather at this central location, hundreds of Uh, We had two. I had the Haskins and Hargrove family reunion sometime during the summer, and both were just packed with family members, and we would gather there, and uh, every year, people I did not know, but were trying to figure out who I was, the older folks, they all know each other. They don't know who you are, and so they would walk up and say, now whose boy are you? Who's your daddy? Who do you belong to? And you would tell them, and once they figured out who you were, over and over they would launch into stories about your grandparents, about your parents, about your aunts and your uncles, and growing up with them, and what it was like. And I always remember the stories that were told to me during that time, and I've, I've always loved stories. So I would lean in and listen to these fascinating stories that my relatives would tell me. They, they would always tell me really bad stories about my grandparents and parents. It wasn't anything noble or good that they did growing up. It was always the worst possible thing that they had ever done. And, and it was supposed to be funny, but I was like, I always was thinking my ancestors are really bad people. One story that was always told uh, by one of my uncles, he would say, I remember that time. We were in your, your uncle's bar in Nashville. See, bar, Nashville, ancestors, really bad. You know this is going to get bad. And your granddad pulled out a shotgun from behind the counter and blew a hole in the floor and busted the water pipes. And then there was another story. I remember when me and your dad, we were about nine years old, and we went out to the tobacco barn, and we we rolled up a bunch of corn husk, and we we lit them on fire, and we were trying to smoke them, and we we almost burned down the whole tobacco farm, or barn, farm too, I guess. I remember those two stories and thinking, that's awful. Those are horrible stories. Why are you telling me these things? But, but I always left the family reunion with hope because I would, I, would, I would always remember, I got a lot of room for error here. <laughs> In carrying on this family legacy, I can make a lot of mistakes and still turn out all right because these people were really bad and they didn't mind telling me the really bad stories. It's kind of the same way we feel when we read the Bible is we read these stories of people and we see this story that we fit into and we wonder sometimes, why does God only always include the bad parts of the story? He doesn't hide their flaws. Remember last week, David lies to the priest and the Bible doesn't hide that. He doesn't understand his own authority and he lies to the priest and the Bible doesn't cover that up. It reveals his sin to us, and it shows us that we fit into this family legacy, and it's not all good. There's some really bad things that happen, and that is to give us hope, because if we know our own hearts, we would say, I'm a really bad person at times, and I got some really bad stories, 
And yet they fit into one glorious story. And there's no story that is more horrible than the story of 1 Samuel. As we move through the chapter, we see Saul devastates the priesthood, destroys, brings to naught the priesthood of Israel. And this story begins in verse 3. And David went there from Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. And then the prophet of Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now remember last week where David is left. In verses 1 through 3, we see it is the cave of Adullam. And this is described as a stronghold. We see that word over and over and over again. And it's vitally important to understanding this chapter. It means refuge. This was a cave out in the hill country. And it's where over 400 soldiers have gathered to David in this stronghold. And the outcast and the run down and the depressed and the broken and the hurting, the hurting they have gathered to David there in the cave of Adullam. And as his family comes to him, David wants to take special care of them. And notice he takes them to the king of Moab. Now when we hear of this king in Moab, we're to remember David's great-grandmother. Her name is Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Moabite widow. And remember, she comes to Judah. And in Judah, she finds herself in Bethlehem. And she is redeemed by a man named Boaz. And she is folded into this story David's ancestry includes a Moabite widow, one who would be considered a pagan enemy of God. And now he has taken his family there for what? For refuge, to another stronghold, for protection. And then we see this prophet of Gad, this seer, comes to David and says, you can't remain in Moab. You've got to go to Judah. And what he says to David here is your refuge, your stronghold, isn't in another country. It is in the land of Judah. You have been anointed king of Israel. And in Judah, you will find refuge. And David ends up in this forest where he's going to begin to, to fight. And he's going to begin to find refuge. But the point is, your refuge isn't in a foreign country. You are God's king and you are to go to Judah. Now, why would David do this? In Genesis chapter 49, we read these words, the scepter will not pass from Judah. And David is called to understand that your stronghold isn't in a cave. It isn't in Moab. It's in Judah where the promise was made. And the point here to David is, you don't find refuge in a place. You find refuge in a promise. God made a promise to the people of Israel. God made a promise to you that you of the tribe of Judah will rule. 
And he is fulfilling that promise in this glorious story, this glorious story that has taken us to Moab and adopted a widow, uh, a pagan widow into the family. And, And it's got these twists and turns, but it is the story you're living in. And your refuge isn't in a cave or a place. It is in the story that God is telling with your life. And it's the same thing we're to understand here today. Our refuge isn't in a place or a thing or a moment or a circumstance. Your refuge today is in a glorious story that God is telling. Your refuge is in the storyteller, not where you find yourself in the story today. Some of you come in here and you are extremely insecure about your life. You live with anxiety as if you have messed this whole thing up. You live with anxiety thinking about the next decision. Where am I going to go to school? Who am I going to marry? What about this new job offer? I could mess this whole thing up. And you are racked with fear and you are racked with insecurity. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. You may mess it up temporarily. You may endure some consequences for making a bad decision, but your security isn't in your decision, in your moment. It's in the story, and you can't mess the story up. God is the one telling the story, and we know how the story ends. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. Jesus rules every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It's already written. We've seen the end of the story. So you can't mess his story up. So if you want to find security, don't look for it in your own story. Look for it in his story. And you find security in telling his story with your story. And you know what God decides to do with your story? Even when it's messed up and it's tangled and it's nasty and and there's mistakes and there's sin. He folds it into his story because it makes his story better. Because he cleans up your mess. And he forgives you of your sin. And he gives you things you don't deserve. And that makes him look glorious. And that's the story he's telling. Verse 6 Now Saul heard that David was discovered. Now remember Saul, he's the king Israel has chosen. And he has walked down this path of selfish, sinful destruction. And now he's after David's life. He's after Jonathan's life. And he hears David is discovered. Rumor is getting back. He's in a cave. Oh, he's in Moab. He's escaping. He's on the run. And he hears about this. And the men who were with him. And Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height of his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. Now, we're to see this glorious picture of Saul. He's standing in the highest place. He's holding his spear as if he is something, as if he is mighty. It's a picture of a great king. But notice what he's doing. He's pouting. Verse 7. Saul said to his servants who stood with him, Here now, people of Benjamin. Now this was Saul's tribe. And we're beginning to see here that he has given the Benjamites the the closest rule, the closest authority for his protection. He says this, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Will David, this little shepherd heart boy, yeah, he's a good soldier, but when he becomes king, what's he going to do with the Benjamites? You're my people. 
And he's going he's to cast you out of the office. He's going to drain the swamp. He's going to get rid of you when he comes to rule. Some of you didn't get that. Think a little bit hard. Give you a little time. Just think. He's going to get rid of all of you. Notice he's pouting. Verse 8. That all of you who have conspired against me. And none of you discloses to me when the son of God, or the son, when my son, sorry, when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. What's he doing? David's not going to take care of you. And by the way, none of you tell me what David's doing. You've conspired against me. The Benjamite officials and rulers who I've given this, these great offices to, all of this authority to, and you knew what Jonathan was doing. You knew him and David were buddies. You knew they had made this covenant, and none of you told me. And now David is out there somewhere in some forest, and he's looking to kill me, and you guys have betrayed me. Notice this great picture of this king who stands there with all this might in front of him, and he's pouting like a little baby. Feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for me. But, but notice the paranoia of Saul versus even the courage of Jonathan. Jonathan, Saul's son, who was also a Benjamite, he was the forerunner to David. He was a man after God's own heart. He fought in the name of the Lord. And because it was all about God's kingdom, he gave his kingdom over to David. But what is Saul doing here? He doesn't want to relinquish his kingdom because it's about Saul. And he's not racked with courage. He is racked with paranoia. Saul is defined by his story, so he is paranoid. And David, God's king, is a threat to him. And so he insulates himself. The Benjamites become the highest authority. He's casting dispersion on David, and he's worried about betrayal. And that's the life some of you are living right now. You're insecure and you're paranoid. And you know why? You have defined what makes you happy. You have defined what will make you happy. My stuff, my time, my people, me, what I want, that's going to make me happy. And we hear the gospel. People share the gospel with us. We hear the gospel here. We hear the gospel in our small groups. And Jesus sort of creeps in on what's mine. And we get scared. And we see Jesus as a threat. And some of us are doing the same thing that Saul does. When you oppose God, one of the things that goes on in your life is you begin to think everybody's against you. You begin to think everybody... You begin to say things like this. All these, all these church folks, they want me to do these things for Jesus. You know, my, my kids... They're upset with the way I'm living my life. My family, they're critiquing what I do here and there. And you're threatened and you get paranoid. And you do the same thing Saul does. You begin to insulate yourself with people who tell you what you want to hear. I want my friends who tell me, you know what? Those people in your life, they're just crazy. You need to be happy. You need to be able to do whatever you want to do. 
And you don't have to follow Jesus to be happy. Sure, put Christian on your Facebook page. Sure, quote a verse every now and then. But those people are nuts. You don't have to give your life over to Jesus and he, it, it just consume you. But what's going on in your heart? It's not what they're saying to you. It, it, it's not what's going on with anybody else who's saying for the good or the bad to you. It's what's going on in your heart. And you have to answer that question today. Have you created a kingdom in your own heart where you're pushing others away and you are, you're paranoid, you're excuse-making, you're gathering, you're insulating to protect your own kingdom just like Saul? Well, notice where it leads Saul. Then answered Doag the Edomite. Now, this was this outlaw. When, remember when David goes to the priest and he's asking for bread, he's asking for a weapon, and the priest serves him there? The, this Doag, he, he was held captive uh, in, by the priest, and, and he sees what goes on with the priest and David. He's sort of this shady outlaw. He, he's actually even described as a shepherd. But the name Doag, it means worry. It means anxiety. And we're going to see here that Doag displays Saul's anxiety. Notice Doag the Edomite. Edomites were the enemies of God. He stood by the servants of Saul and he said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Hittab. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provision and gave him a sword, the, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Doag is standing around and he sees the Benjamites. They're not saying a word. They're nervous even for Saul. Saul, we, we see. We've seen you spiral down. We see where this is going. But is the outlaw enemy of God that begins to speak up and says, I saw David and I saw the priest serve him with food and provisions. But not just that. Notice verse 10. He inquired of the Lord for him. He served him as a priest. He made a sacrifice for him. He prayed for him. He, he was involved in this priestly duty for David. It's worse than you even thought, Saul. The priests have aligned with David. But notice what the king does, verse 11. And the king sent and summoned Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Hittub, and all of his father's house, and the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. He says, okay, we're going to have court Bring all the priests from Nob here, this refuge, this city of refuge. Bring them to me. And Saul said, Here now, son of Hittoth. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. Now, that is a disposition of I'm ready to serve the king. That's my role. And he said to Saul, or Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? And notice how this is spiraled down. Y'all just don't like me. Y'all are against me. Now you're conspiring against me. Even the priests are conspiring against me. You and the son of Jesse. And that you have given him bread and a sword. And you have inquired of God for him. You have been a priest to him. So that he has risen against me to lie in wait as this day. You have conspired against me. And you are protecting David. This anointed king. And he is out to get me. And you are hiding him for. Against me. And then verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king. And who among all your servants is faithful as David? Now notice the boldness of the priest here who stands before Saul. He begins 
to argue David's faithfulness. Remember Saul? He's your armor bearer. Remember Saul? Plays the harp for you. Saul, you've tried to kill him four times with a spear, and he's been faithful to you. And we're going to see David continues to do this. He continues to protect Saul even as an enemy of Saul. David is faithful. He is loyal to you. You've been questioning the loyalty of your officers. David is the most loyal. He's honored in your house. Verse 15. And then he says, by the way, is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? I've always been a priest to David. And he says, no, let, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And we begin to see why David lied to the priest. He didn't tell him why he was there. He was protecting his life. Even in that lie, we said, you don't do that. You don't intentionally lie. But David's heart was to protect the priest. He says, I know nothing of this. And then verse 16, notice the king said, you shall surely die. Ahimelech, you and your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood there, turn and kill the priest of the Lord because their hand also is with David. Kill these men who have aligned with David. Now notice how far, at that point, how far Saul's sin has taken him. Kill the priest of Israel. Destroy them. But also notice again Saul's passivity. Saul has been the one in the background just telling people to kill other people. And he won't do it with his own hand. He is a passive king. He is a scared king. He is a fake king. And notice, even his servants, the last part of verse 17, but the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. He has even no authority at that point over his own soldiers, over his own warriors. He is a fake king with no authority at this point. But notice verse 18. One will rise to the occasion. Notice the verse. Then the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priest. Now notice what he's doing. He's aligning with the enemy of God. And Doag, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. 85 priests. None of Saul's men would do this. Saul wouldn't even do this. And so to get the job done, he goes to the Edomite. One from the line of Esau. Remember in Genesis, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And from Esau come the Edomites, the enemies of God. Even when Israel was entering the promised land, the Edomites would not give them safe passage. There are times in Israel's history where they are taken into captivity and it is the Edomites who stand to the side and laugh at them. It is the face of the enemy of God who Saul aligns with here to do his dirty work. And this city of refuge is now a city of blood. Verse 19, in Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman and child and infant, ox and donkey and sheep. He put to the sword. He will not stop. He is obliterating the priesthood of Israel on behalf of Saul. Now, one of the things we see about David is he is described as a man after God's own heart. And he's a shepherd who displays God's shepherd heart. And we're going to begin to see this man after God's own heart who displays God's shepherd's heart. 
Last week we saw that Doeg is called a what? A shepherd. And here we see Doeg is displaying Saul's heart. He is a man after God's own heart who will seek, kill, and destroy to get his way. Ultimately, he is a man after Satan's own heart. Saul is a king after Satan's own heart. And he is willing to kill. He is willing to destroy to get his way. Saul had been commissioned to kill the Amalekites, and he wouldn't do it. And now he's killed the whole priesthood. And I want you to think about that for a moment. How hard has it been for Saul to do what's right? Really hard. Saul, go kill the Amalekites, wipe them out. And he doesn't do it because he's selfish. But now what will he do? He will totally wipe out the priesthood just to get what he wants. He's passive with God's will and yet aggressive with his will. And is that not where we live? Where we are passive about things God has called us to do? Where, where it's really hard to obey. It's really hard to do the right thing. Uh, as a general rule, the hardest thing in your life is usually the right thing. It's really hard to obey. But how easy is it to sin? How easy is it for you to sin? You don't have to teach your kids how to sin, ever, do you? Now today... Son, I'm going to teach you something that's really, really hard. I'm going to teach you how to sin. You don't have to teach them. No. They wake up in labor delivery, screaming, what? Mine! Feed me! Now! Right now! Now, we know that's wired into them, but it is a reflection of me, my, now. And it just continues to go. It continues to cultivate itself. It's easy to serve yourself. And you know, that, that's where Satan prays in our life. How does Satan wipe out the priesthood? He prays upon Saul's heart's desire to serve himself. And now there are 85 priests laying in blood. And then the city of Nob, there are women and children laying on the street and it exposes Saul's heart to serve himself. And that's the story that Satan wants to tell with you. He, he's not going to offer you something that's really hard for you to do. He's going to prey upon what you really want to do. He's going to give you what you want the most and he's going to lure you into those things. So what? So he can tell the story of your heart and expose you as an enemy of God? He's going to say, you really want to do what you want to do. And some of us are going to do those things in private where nobody knows. And we don't think anybody will ever hear, anybody will ever see the things that I do off to myself. And yet there is a billboard in those moments where you're working really hard to hide your sin. You, you have thought through and you have planned, how can I do this thing and nobody ever find about it? How can I hide these numbers? How can I delete this history off the internet? How can I, how can I say this and not be, not, not be held accountable for it? And you have worked really, really hard that no one else would see your sin, but you see it. And what you're supposed to do is say, oh, Satan is telling a story. 
And God is allowing me to see it. That if left to myself and left to my own desires, I will seek, kill, and destroy to get my own way. And some of us do it with our mouths right now. You may not have a sword. You, you may not have a dagger where you are piercing other people. But you have a tongue. And it is on fire against those who get in your way. Those who take credit that you want. Those who just can't do the right thing. And you rage and you're angry. There's a story of your heart that's being told. And you're aligning with the enemy to get your way. And you are the Saul of the story. The question for you today is, will you be the doeg after Satan's own heart? And will you seek, kill, and destroy to get your way? Is that the story you will tell? Notice verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Hittab, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. There's hope. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, and I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Notice what David does. This is my fault. Do, do you see his heart? I knew I should have killed that Edomite. <laughs> I knew what was about to happen. This is my fault. He takes responsibility. David is a good king. David is a, a, a good leader at this point. And he says, stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. And with me you shall be in safe keeping. Notice, Saul has killed the whole priesthood. David is taking responsibility for the priesthood. And even in a very vivid way, you, the single priest who has escaped, you come and you find refuge with me. I will identify with you. Now remember last week how the chapter began. David is in a stronghold. David is in refuge. Notice how the chapter ends. David is the refuge. All the outcasts, Saul's men even, David's family, they have fled to the cave for refuge with David. But now you have the priest fleeing to David as his refuge. We read through the Psalms often and we hear David himself sing what? The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my strength. The, the, the Lord is my stronghold. He will protect me. And now here in the king, God becomes the stronghold. In David, God is the stronghold for his people. And the point is, our story must find security in the king. Notice David even becomes a priest to the priest. Notice the wording there. I will be your security. I will be your mediator, your protector. And those who seek my life, they, they will, those who seek your life will seek my life. I will identify with you. I will stand with you against your enemies. Your enemies have become my enemies. And that's where refuge is found. And our security must be in the king who becomes our priest. And his name is Jesus. And you know what Jesus says to you today? He who seeks your life has already sought mine. Sin and death 
And that, that, that as we were just describing, the wickedness of our own heart to do whatever we want, the consequences where we ruin our life, ultimately that is God's judgment. We deserve God's judgment and wrath. And it seeks our life. And Jesus steps in the way as a king who is a priest. And he says, that which is seeking your life has already sought my life as he has endured the wrath of God for you. He has endured the destruction, the bloodshed for you. And so our story must find security there. And so when folks say, who are you? Who are you? Maybe in your mind today, there is a long list of really bad stories. Not just of your family members, but of you. When people talk about sin, there's just this scenes that come into your mind of things that you did and that defines what sin is in my life. And there's a long list of stories that you would be too embarrassed to tell us today. But you must find security in a better story. A story of one who has already said to you, everything you've done to ruin your life ruined my life. On the cross, that's what happened. Everything that would bring you ruin ruined Jesus. As he screamed till he couldn't scream no more. As he was beaten like an abused dog, a, a, a limp flesh hanging on two pieces of wood. It can't get any worse than that. He says, my life's already been ruined for you. What seeks to ruin your life, and that's your story of one who's already been crucified. Maybe you're here today and somebody says, who are you? And, and, and there are story after stories where you have woken up in the morning and you have wished last night was a dream. And you proved that you'll do whatever it takes to get what you want. You would, you would make a decision. You would say a thing in a moment just to get what you want there. You had to have it. And you proved that your heart was against God. Well, there is refuge in the story. Notice the story. It's not just the Moabites who find refuge or who provide refuge. The promise of the gospel is even the Edomites can find refuge in Jesus. And maybe that's who you are today. There is refuge in Jesus. There is another story for you in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, that's not me. All of these, all of these things that you've recounted today of really bad things and feeling really bad ways and hiding sin and doing really bad things, that ain't me. I mean, I grew up in church. I went to Mission Friends. I went to Awana. I, I have hiked into mountains and shared the gospel with people. I've been uh, a part of church planting movements. I've been in situations where everybody gave up on church and I stayed there and I saw it through and I was miserable and I've done all of these things for Jesus. Well, even to you today, that can't be your refuge. Your refuge can't be your righteousness. You know what that's like? That's like taking dirty, stinking toilet paper and building a tent and saying, I'm going to get in this tent and I'm going to hide under Niagara Falls. That's the way it is. To say, look, God, look what I've done is to crawl under your righteousness, under his wrath. You know what it's going to do? It's going to destroy you. Now, the only way you can stand before the wrath of God is in 
Christ. And to believe in him. And there is another story that will be told about your life. And it is one who is justified. You know what justified means? It means to be declared one who has never sinned and always obeyed. And there's only one who's done that, and it's Jesus. And his righteousness is your refuge if you would believe in him today. And this is the story you need for your life, one who has been crucified, one who has already borne the wrath of God, one who has all the rights and privileges to the throne, even though they were an enemy of God, and one who is justified before God. And you know what we're going to do in heaven? It's going to be like those family reunions. They're going to walk up, who are you? And we're going to tell all these crazy stories. Some of them we wouldn't tell here today. We may even tell those stories in heaven. But you know, even in telling those stories, we will tell his story. Because it is his story where our stories find refuge. Let's pray.